This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. It amazes me. Simple things, just what people do to keep joy alive uh, when, you know, you think they should be despairing. But something within poetry that remains, keep that joy and humanity Mm. um, alive. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, the editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'll be talking with Aishan Hutchinson, who published two poems in the autumn issue of the magazine, West Ride Out and Travel Axe. Aishan Hutchinson was born in Port Antonio, Jamaica, and lives in the US, where he teaches at Cornell University, although at the moment he's spending a year in Rome as a fellow at the American Academy. He's published two collections, Far District in 2010, which won the Penn Joyce Osterwell Award, and House of Lords and Commons, which was published by FSG in the States in 2016, where it was awarded the National Book Critics Circle Award. It's just been published over here by Faber. He was also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Whiting Award, among other accolades. Thanks very much for joining us, Aishin. Thank you for having me, Emily. You're very welcome. I'd like to start the podcast by asking um, the poet to just read uh, one of their poems from the issue and then we'll have a chat about the poem and poetry in general. So could you read us West Ride Out? I will. West Ride Out. And love grows angel in the gloom With your calls through resistant stars I turn and it is fall And memory vivifies a sick man-child's calling back in darkness To the dark, to split The dark flashes like red ants in hot oil, but, as now, fades quickly into irises under the lids of those ridges that recalls the soul's migration in one solid ascending fire. My breath shutters to our ruined sea. I assume their breakers twisted swamp cabbages, choral voice untouched at noon by your secular luster lying down to sleep. At the far edge, a godami struggles towards paradise, your burnished miniature Sahara, speckled with unfallen sea pears, their relics of pale sapphire, keel-crested into claws of petals and scratched against the day's azure blaze, dissolve cormorants into the sand. Others lengthen the old coup d'oeil militaire, to reave your heart, but all are empty, silos I reflect and invert into bracts, thresh as thorns, as stars clear apart, when the island stands bare mornings, amidst some peril in the blur of another fall. Seen through frostlight, the spires are distinct amber above the fading brick, what people here might call brunette or auburn, with neither shame nor guilt. The silk-blooded air travails. Do you hear? In the tamaracks, I catch a glimpse of what resemble great black hawks. In America, not heaven, it is always autumn. Severance climate only you repair. Yet a decade does not annul the first pain, sighting canoes brazed in the lake at dusk. A gloom no different from dawn, fish beloved, forming a pattern the wind translates. 
nothing more. The mine's calipers move inland to alien green ferns embanked for the obelé of our childhood, dreaming in brief lightning. You are there, absently, guilt-nerved, about to speak, and having spoken, silent. Then your contrails of periwinkles strain down the beach to face the basalt reef. Axles, meanwhile, shatter spurious rain flickers along balaclava. I ride out late-night ghettos, riding out mists and fishbone taillights to trim sunlight to your bewildering name. As I near, spores leaven the fracas of waves into a desultory panic, the idolatry of water, your great repose. Do not wake, but wake now to my devotion song and eat of me, please. There's something so rich about the fabric of the language. The reader has this sense of language being kind of plumbed to its depths. And it sent me to the dictionary several times, which was actually a really enjoyable, enriching thing. And I felt like its effects for me were happening more on a sort of sensory level, perhaps than, I don't know what you'd call an an intellectual one. Maybe those two are indistinguishable in some ways. But anyway, I just wondered if you could say a little bit about where the poem came from or the circumstances of writing it, just to give the listeners a bit of context. The first context that I would say is the landscape itself that the poem is trying to evoke and travel through. It's a journey through a physical place from the eastern tip of the island, Jamaica, my own hometown, Port Antonio, to the other, the western end of the island, to a town called Balaclava, which is mentioned at the end of the Mm. poem. It's that physical journey that spills over into a metaphysical journey through time and space, while sort of still trying to remain intimately connected to the physical, tactile landscape. Because the, the primary influence on the structure and the patterning of the poem, even though it's greatly changed, is um, John Donne's um, poem, Good Friday, 1613, Riding Westward. That syntax, the, the, the Russian eddy of that poem, because it is what the title says, a riding poem. Yeah. And this is, in its way, a journey poem, my own. And Donne sort of flitters through the, the poem in other ways. So Dunn is the sort of figure ghost in the poem in a way, and it's a, and it is a, a devotion, d- devotional kind of poem, of a kind of sacrament, a sort of prayer a to the of, landscape in a way, a prayer to the landscape, and and to, as I imagine it, a child of the island, probably ungendered, a spirit, but a child spirit of the island, yeah. who is trying to get from one end to the other, and is kind of trapped. Because island within this space are even marooned, really, but is finding it necessary to make the journey, whether it has to be done through the psyche or, as it is the case of the poem, breaking free and physically traveling. I sort of picked up also from the second poem that you published in the magazine and from your recent book. There's so much about the landscape of the Caribbean and you're obviously living away from there now. So I had a sense of sort of a vague sense of homesickness. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but running through the poems. So I guess I wondered how you feel that your distance from home Mm -hmm. affects your writing, if it 
invigorates it in some way. I would agree with the homesickness. Even that poem, West Ride Out, though it's located in Jamaica, there's glances of American landscape and vegetation and so on. And you're right, it speaks to, I would exaggerate to say a sort of displacement, but an obvious nostalgia. And the exciting and dangerous thing about nostalgia is that home comes closer and frighteningly beautified at times, overly seeing the the magnificence of it, the richness. I, I have to be on guard to pay attention to the complexity of that landscape. Distance has its its good points for driving the need to be vigilant about returning, returning responsibly. It would be a complete waste of time if I am in America or wherever else and not learning the craft better and aspiring to be a, a stronger poet. That's the primary reason for me being away. Not that I couldn't or it's impossible to be a very good poet at home, but it's part of the cliche of the poet's life. She has to go far in order to return with the... There's a, a phrase from Virgil in one of the eclogues where it's a kind of boast that uh, I will be the first to return home with the muses. Poets have that kind of arrogance, I think, that you would return home to a triumphal march or something like that. But it's kind of I how I really think of it is returning upon poems, returning through poems that vividly capture the spirit of home. To sort of say, talk a bit more about the spirit of home as such. I, I read in the Paris Review that you had interviewed Derek Walcott at some point and it asked him what he thought his greatest strength as a poet was. And he'd had this amazing answer evoking Caribbean light in certain passages and that you said you'd hoped to do the same. I picked up on that because reading West Ride Out, I felt a real strong sense of light yeah. being evoked really powerfully. And that's something that is so difficult to write about, I think, to somehow create the visual experience of being in a landscape. And I don't know what the question is here, but that was just an observation, maybe more. Thank you for that. And and I think I am, a, as most poets, a worshipper of light because it encapsulates the visionary elemental aspect of poetics. It can't be touched. It can only be experienced through its contrast. The Caribbean light and and Caribbean saying Caribbean light is a gross exaggeration because as much as there's that space, the Caribbean, each island is so very different. You travel to the different islands and the light is different. Within the island, the light can be different from one town to the next. I grew up in a sea town, so the brightness of it and playing off the sea makes this the sky seamless with the the landscape, whereas not more than five miles away, there's another town where I also spent a good deal of my childhood where the sea was very much far away and what was very present was the, um, the cane fields. The light had a sharpness of green to it, green lined with silver that looks much like the edge of a machete filed 
Oh, wow, that's a lovely description. Yeah, it has a painful sharpness about it, as if the light is commiserate with the the history, the plantation history, which is alive and well, but disguised in the contemporary moment of that place. That's really interesting to align light with that history. I was going to ask you about that, in fact, that so much of your work is concerned with the legacy of colonialism, And I was interested in some comments you made in another interview in The Believer about the sort of contradiction inherent in speaking or writing in the language of colonizers. I suppose I was wondering if that's something you feel that you're thinking about even as you're writing, or is it some more of a sort of afterthought? Is it sort of sewn into the fabric of your work? Or Yeah, I would think it's there both consciously and unconsciously because... We are now speaking to each other in English. It's one of those things that bind us together. And that's the great beauty of of having that, that we can communicate, right? But for communication to happen, um, both parties have to be on the same page. And that's usually the the major issue with having colonial dialogues that are forward-thinking, is that on one side, there might be a closed ear. And so the speaking voice just falls into nothingness, into a void. And that is, in fact, the kind of way that colonialism developed, silencing the other who already possesses a a speaking voice, even when the, the other now speaks the language of the colonizer. But I'm also aware of, and trying not to simplify these terms when we say the language of the and the language of that yeah because especially when it comes to poetry wherein language is refined to its highest most elevated exalted expression closer to music than anything else so the communication does not run into the ethical minefield that language has to come to terms with uh, with poetry not necessarily with poem but but with poetry transcendental experience in in poetry one can understand the other without even speaking the same language because this experience of poetry is so powerful and it aims to convert the deaf ear to open up and take in whatever is that deep inner crying voice poems are under duress really to do that service to break the barriers and and remove them because i think at the the most basic level of human life there's already i think perhaps no border it's just the structures that have been built up around people unfortunately that's mostly tied to crushing economical system and so human lives have been perverted into accepting or living through the horrors that history has shown us simply to benefit the very few. It makes me think of a passage from your poem in House of Lords and Commons in the poem October's Levant, where I think you're quoting, and for the soul, if it is to know itself, it is into a soul that it must look. So that idea of like poetry bringing two sort of consciousnesses together Mm. through some sort of transcendental thing I mean it sort of sounds like a very grand thing to aim for but also it's obviously a a very beautiful 
yeah. hope that might be what poetry is I would say aiming it, it, at. I, I agree. And, and I, I would want to think of it as a simple thing that's built in, encoded in people. It's, it's love. It's a pure instinct, a drive, as much as the opposite of love possibly is pure and there already. But we are preconditioned to love. Mm. And that poem you, you just read that line from, I'm trying to remember if it's from George Seferis. Yes, I yes. think it is. Yes. I looked it up, yeah. Yes, yeah. The, the modern Greek poet whom I, I dearly love. And he has a formulation, or he said once something to the effect that poetry must be strong enough to help, right? The fact that it's not a weapon that you can take out of a a holster and then use materially it's even more powerful because it is a an inner armor that's available to anyone that you don't have to pay for this is the amazing thing which i know that poetry from the beginning was around me even though there was great poverty and lack but there was something i didn't know the word for it or even think there could be a word which we would now call poetry, that was very present in the life of my own family, uh, but the community as a whole. And that poetry is so embedded in the, the fabric of the survival of people through centuries of you know, slavery and colonialism. It amazes me. Simple things, just what people do to keep joy alive uh, yeah. when you know you think they should be despairing but something within poetry that remains keep that joy and humanity mm. um, alive well i suppose it's like the light again isn't it something yes. sort it's of true. inexplicable that is there yes that leads on nicely to a question i was going to ask if you could just say a little bit about your apprenticeship is a grand word but your apprenticeship <laughs> as a poet so when did you start writing and was there a particular poet you came across at some point or any kind of artist that made you think that's something I want to do myself you know I'm not self-deprecating when I say the apprenticeship is still happening maybe I just hear the the great poets that I admire often say they're still amateurs mm. you know they're here to serve the language not to master it, well, mastering it through serving it. I didn't read a lot of poetry when I was growing up. What I was saying earlier about the sort of, I don't necessarily like the word, but the, the folk poetry that existed in songs, in just the drama of the street and the yard. Extremely poetic. There are lines that have the integrity of great poetry that people could recite. And Jamaica is a place where, I'm sure this happens here, um, where you have to have a catchphrase. Right. Everybody has a, some sort of catchphrase. It's just, as soon as you land in Jamaica, you're going to get a nickname. It can either be poetic or just, what is the opposite of poetic? Um, <laughs> but from the music itself, and there's so many performers, so many mm. singers and DJs, what makes a DJ interesting and memorable is her or his catchphrase, something that identifies this person. So what's your catchphrase? My catchphrase? <laughs> I didn't have any. I, I, um, 
I, you know, and I never had a nickname either. I'm still wondering how I escaped that <laughs> growing up. You know, I, of course, I was called things, you know, big head, which is just too obvious. Uh, so that, <laughs> that's not going to really stick. But the reason I'm thinking is because when I was very young, I was a, a Rasta child with a Rasta sounding name. So already that is a nickname in itself. So it was already cool to have a name that sounds different from John Brown. Uh, okay. Yeah, so maybe. <laughs> and even when I went to UWE in Jamaica and people were going through their African f- phase, wearing cheap dashikis, growing dreads and so on, and I would run into them and we exchanged names and like people would be surprised, oh, that's a good Rasta name you, you took on. I was born with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so. All I had to do is put King before it, King Aishan, <laughs> walk around with a staff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you can do that later, maybe in your so when you're an older statesman of poetry. <laughs> uh, to have a crawl uh, and a, a campfire. Um, yeah, but I do remember in sixth form going to the library one evening and finding a book the selected poetry of Dirk Walcott, edited by Wayne Brown. It was just an evening after school. I went to the library and randomly browsed and randomly pulled that book from the shelf and opened it randomly to a page and read the first few lines. I'm trying to remember if we, we had done Walcott's play before. I think we had done one of his plays. So his name wasn't unfamiliar to me. What was completely unfamiliar was there was some amount of Caribbean literature, particularly novels, that you got early on. But I had never really came across any sort of, for lack of a better word, contemplative voice Mm. before. You know, this is a rural community, so I'm sure maybe in other places Walcott was available Mm. even more and other great Caribbean poets. But for me, that wasn't the case at my school. When I went to the library that evening and opened the book, it's to a poem called Landfall Grenada. And the lines that begin the poem go something like this. Where you are rigidly anchored by the blue foothills of blown canes. And it was an elegy for, I guess it was a seaman, mm-hmm. an elegy for a mariner. And the phrase blown canes was like an electric shock to me standing at the shelf reading it because everything about it was familiar and overwhelmingly familiar. It was, uh, you know, the whole thing that Elliot said about mankind can't handle too much reality. Yeah. It just came right home to me. It signified the cane and that kind of activity of blowing the violence of it in the bashing of those syllables that I know I'd looked at them with a certain vehemence before the cane, but walking out of the library, that was doubled. And I also felt somewhat robbed of not having been introduced earlier yeah, to yeah. such things, you know, such literature. And it made me want to follow it. So my... um apprenticeship began then what an amazing moment it's, it's it just sort of gave me goosebumps or something so. yeah 
Um, so yeah, I wanted to go back to the, I think it was the interview you did in The Believer that I mentioned earlier, where you said something else that I really liked about the the blank page when you're starting a poem not being blank. And you were quoting mm-hmm. John Clare, which a lovely quote about that he just goes to the field to pick yeah. the poems that they're all sort of there. Yeah. That struck me because the autumn issue, when I was coming to write my editorial, I noticed that several of the poems used the word palimpsest. That had been a word that I'd always been sort of found very romantic. Um, <laughs> so I wrote about that in my editorial. But when you start writing a poem and there's not a blank page conceptually, if you're aware of what you're writing on top of. So in the moment of writing, uh, there is the, you know, the anguish of um, finding the rhythm that you have to live with for a while. And that takes place inside. My whole physical being has to think this rhythm, this pattern is coming into shape. I usually don't commit anything with the yes, I will write this out kind of approach until some of that pattern is stabilized within me. But I also have another practice, which is, I think most poets do it, the drudging work of just exercise typewriting, just keeping the hand and the paper, taking notes. And those I I try to rescue with, for instance, imposing form on it, just really playing with the, the words themselves. And somewhere along the line, the focus comes clear as what kind of subject or subjects are meandering in the poem. That then forces me to be on the, the lookout to, to make sure the vocabulary, the kind of arrangement of the words, really adhere to an ethic, an ethic that is complicit to or linked to aesthetic, right? Mm. So they become one unit. That I am very conscious of. Because it's where I am stepping back and worrying about my politics. You know, that lower line, my my eyes have seen what my hand has done. Stepping back from the page and seeing it. That's why I agree, or I have this belief that the page is already written on. And you are now a contributor. <laughs> it's like voting in a way. You are now giving assent or participating the blankness of the page is deceptive because it's saying the page is virginal or innocent and it's anything but Mm. so the poet has to have a kind of vigilance and cannot resort to you know i'm I'm a i'm someone who play with words and leave it at that yeah because the words have their own attachments that you have to then interrogate afterwards I guess absolutely absolutely but there are different degrees and it's a case-to-case situation you know I'm just thinking of certain poets and or statements on poetics which I 
I go back and forth on whether I should accept them or, or reject them. For instance, the one that Sidney says that the poet nothing affirm it. The poet can't be taken to task for her poetry because poetry nothing affirm it. Huh. Um, as far as a, a legislative legal question, that's certainly true. You can't bring a poem as evidence of someone's crime. <laughs> <laughs> but the poetry is playing out in a bigger arena. Mm. This is going to sound so corny. But the health of the, the soul. <laughs> but really, the health, the psychological health then of even the, the, the poet herself is linked to the kind of poetry that flows from that person. And the poet stands in the flow of words and is not freed from it. You're fabricating the poem out of this stream. And it brings the question of poetics into the limelight because, A, whether this person's poetics was really up to task, if this could have been articulated a certain way to make the poem itself still resonant, but not ethically flawed. There's an inbuilt aesthetical, ethical uh, system in the various poetics because they've gone through centuries of formulation. Once a poet is a student of those poetics, is better off writing poems that um, are less ethically questionable. For instance, one contemporary poet that I admire, among many others, people might refer to Les Murray as a conservative poet or as conservative politics and so on. But when I read his poems and really see how this serious, uncompromised attention to form but form that is not being executed for form's sake, but to the occasion of reality. I am in full agreement with what comes out of the poem. Yeah. And plus, as a reader, I have a... I'm free to interpret, and I am probably often wrong. <laughs> but that's the genius of that poet, that... I don't think I'm being fooled that this is some pseudo-shaman verse, but the language has risen to that genuine power that Plath or Gwendolyn Brooks, to name just to display over and over in their great poems. I wish we could talk all day about the poetics and we actually have a manifesto series in the magazine where I invite poets to write about their poetics and I'm just really interested in how a person's politics in a more sort of day-to-day -day way interact with their poetics on the page yeah maybe we can talk more about that some other time yes so just to finish off I will ask you to read the other poem that you published in the magazine Travel Acts okay Travel Acts the sun bears my letter to you, roofed with words that will not damage the forest or worsen the weather of Paris, drain an art nouveau, 
umbrellas scurry past. But this rain cold is the sun, splintered with an axe, smuggled through customs, an axe gentle and good to me, made bright on a cocoa river, blade drawn brown on blood, the shadow of cocoa trees. I must return there and grow simpler again under those trees. A low hawk is now rippling over the river where the valley is hidden from above and I am Jim Hawkins whistling to myself. Thank you so much, Aisha. Thank you very much, Emily. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.